So we've been working away at spiritual formation over a lifetime. Earlier this summer in Peter and now in the life of David, been using Eugene Peterson's book, A Leap Over a Wall. And today we come to this amazing story of Abigail. And though the unavoidably this morning we'll talk a lot about Abigail, remember that what we're really talking about here is David and his formation and how many of us like David, we start out the spiritual life with lots of enthusiasm and promise and you know, David's aware of his kind of special being and the energy that God's given him, the purity of heart that God has given him, but then inevitably something goes wrong. And we recognize that within us, within our own hearts, are forms of wickedness or evil. We don't like to say that, and I understand, I don't like to say it. You know, we might think that occasionally we make errors or occasionally we do something wrong, but to use the word evil or wickedness about ourselves or a human being, it just, that doesn't sound very pleasant, does it? But I think the reason we need to face it is that created in the image of God, you are extraordinarily powerful. So, you know, a little thing, uh, running a red light or charging ahead and not paying attention to a pedestrian or something. So, you know, some little thing like that, you know, not a big deal. But when you think of the actual evil and wickedness in the world, that comes from great human power. There is a power behind it. And when we see the image of God in a human being being used for wickedness, then it's, it's always stunning to us and it should be. But what we see in Abigail is the stunning power of goodness. That human beings are just made in the image of God. We have extraordinary capacity. We don't tend to think we do, but we do. And so what we see in Abigail is how God will sometimes send persons into our life when our own formation is going wrong and we need it. So in this case, the person who needs it obviously is David. David's been banished to the wilderness by the hatred of Saul. He's been trying to make the best of it, just doing things right. And as a part of doing things right, he's been caring for Nabal's vulnerable workers. You might think of something that like David set up a neighborhood watch. Uh, That would be a good kind of modern way to think about it. That David set up, you know, something that would take care of the neighborhood. And so he protected Nabal's workers from the wilderness and from being exposed to ruthless sheep stealers. And then the feast time comes, the feast of shearing, and David finds that he and his own men are in need of help and are looking for, in the Hebrew world mind, kind of normal hospitality. And that is to say, in this era, in this worldview, when someone asked you for something, you pretty much had to give it. I mean, that was normal hospitality. If someone knocked at your door and literally said, I'm hungry or I'm thirsty, the expectation was that you would just give it. And it wasn't a big deal because you know that the reverse would be true for you. And so everybody just knew that pretty much whatever was asked for, you were meant to give it. But Nabal is a fool by nickname and a fool by nature. He's rich, but harsh, rude, brutal, selfish, greedy, drunk, unmanageable, stubborn, ill-tempered, and was evil in his doing. And in that evilness, he snubs David and insults him. So as you might guess, David loses his temper. He's outraged. He feels belittled and disrespected. He's not getting what he wants. He's offended by it. And his self-importance is challenged. 
And so armed with righteous indignation, he's just going to avenge his hurt feelings and his bruised image. And he's gonna take all of Nabal's possessions and he's gonna kill him. Fundamental to Jesus's explanation of what God was doing in and through him was this, that we are invited to live our life in the kingdom of God and to derive our life from it and to do so for the sake of others, to mediate the goodness, graciousness, power, and love of God to others all over the gospels. And I could stand here and read you 20 or 30 passages where Jesus just assumes that his followers are gonna mediate the goodness of God to others. And this is right at the heart of the beauty of what you see in Abigail. But this goes wrong for us. And it goes wrong for us because we tend to dehumanize the other. So when we're present with somebody, we just might not even like the way they dress and we're put off by it. We literally can't be present to them just because we don't like the way they dress or they have bad breath or we don't like what they do for a living or we don't like their car or we don't like their political views. And so we dehumanize them. Where Abigail, for whatever character she developed in herself, the goodness, grace, mercy of God, whatever's happening here, she is able to stare into the reality of these two out of control men and not say, have at it, boys. You deserve each other. You're both nuts and evil. Go for it. You're like, I'm going shopping, right? Or I'm gonna go get coffee. You can have at it. Now, you all know that I'm not a political person and this is not a political statement. But when a political leader of any kind utters a sentence like, well, we'll just wipe them out. We'll just wipe the country off the map. You cannot say that if you haven't first dehumanized those people. No one wipes out hundreds of thousands of people without first consciously or subconsciously dehumanizing them. And when ISIS or other radical parts of Islam says that we're the great Satan and wants to kill as many people as they can, well, it's because they've dehumanized us. We're less than human. And this gets just right at the heart of all kinds of human evil. It gets at the heart, for instance, of rape. Rape is not about sex. Rape is about dehumanizing the other. And this just this gets right at the heart of so much of what goes wrong in humanity. And Abigail is like a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ into the pain in the world where she literally puts herself on her face in the dust, like just trying to stand in the middle of this mutual dehumanizing. See, David feels it, that's why he's wounded. And who knows what's going on in the psychopathology of Nabal, but something, and certainly David is feeling that he's been dissed. Now listen to me, but he's too important to be dissed. See, the bottom of this is sort of a self-importance. And it's the kind of thing that we feel when we're in line at CVS or something and some old lady in front of us, and I, I'm getting to where I can't say that phrase too much longer because I'm soon gonna be an old man, but you know, some old lady is in front of us fumbling with her debit card or something or doesn't know how to use the chip reader. And we're like, come on. Well, where does that come from? That sort of come on. What it comes from is I'm more important than you and I do not deserve to be held up in my life by you. That again is like a, just a little subtle form of dehumanizing. Like I, I'm too important for this. And what I'm up to in my life is too important. So come on, get with it. Learn what a chip reader is. So in this moment, David's kind of lost himself. He's lost the beauty of his calling and his anointing. 
He's lost his focus on serving God and others. And Abigail, this marginal woman in this male-dominated world, who's weaponless in the midst of sword-rattling men, she hears what's about to happen, sees the wisdom of God, and seeks beauty in the midst of this ugly mutual hate that really is born of materialism. This is all about goods and services. I served you by serving your men, and now I require goods, food. I give you protection, now I want food. And she's the heroine who stands between these two out-of-control men and represents the interests of God. So while they're engaging in this mutual dehumanization, Abigail, like if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, just this should be the vision you walk out of here with. Abigail is humanity as God intended. When God first created and said to the first humans, come work with me, come be my cooperative friends in this amazing new creation. And it goes south really fast. And so we lose an imagination for what might God have meant by this cooperative friendship within his creation. And in Abigail, we see what it's like. So she kind of stops David in his tracks by her beauty. And it's not just physical beauty, but the Hebrew word here is like, her form. But remember when we first started reading David, he too was said to be beautiful. You know, the old King James word I think is comely or something. But, it's, it's, but the Hebrew idea there is their form. So, you know, the shape of a face or a body or whatever, whatever would make somebody attractive. But it's not just that for Abigail. She has an inner beauty that uh, Eugene Peterson calls her an icon. And you know what an icon is? An icon is a piece of art that radiates something out of it. It like radiates God to us. And so in her face, her countenance, her eyes, remember Jesus said the eyes are the window to the soul. In the language of her body, she reveals a larger and truer perspective, right? David backs off because she's sort of like a winsome, lovely, intelligent prophet. And even just her countenance reveals a more and a beyond than just what these two guys are dealing with. So Peterson says that Abigail recovers God for David. Her humble, on her knees, she gives David back his humility, puts him back on his knees, and restores to him his beauty. Another author I read put it this way, David's harp, remember when David played his harp before Saul? David's harp had stilled the raging of Saul, and the voice of Abigail exercised the demon of revenge and woke the angels slumbering in David's bosom. So thinking of all this, I just started, you know, thinking of how God shapes and forms a human soul. I just sat for a few minutes and just thought and typed of what just I personally saw in Abigail that's so beautiful to me. So I'll just give you my thoughts. I see in her a nearness to God and his voice, that she knew God. And although she lived in an extremely unhappy home, she somehow remained a saint. I see in her a wisdom and discernment. She's able to see what's real about David and not just blow him off and dehumanize him because he's having a bad moment, but rather she reaches past that bad moment and into his calling and his vocation and calls it out in him. Abigail sees beyond herself to God and to others. It's amazing to me how tough times brought out the best in her. And her hard life lived in cooperation with God produced in her a great poise. It's the other thing that I, when I just think of her and just what she even attempted, and then when I picture her, her face in the dust before this mighty king, 
with bloodthirsty servants with their swords out. Just the poise that she displays here is to me evidence of the work of God in her life. And it calls out to me because I think for us religious types, it's gonna get harder before it gets better. Religion is not likely to recover itself in our lifetime. I think the marginalization of religion, and especially in our country, the, the marginalization of Christianity is not likely to get better. It's likely to get worse. And it's going to require of us a poise to just stand here, knowing that we're always safe in the kingdom of God. And while warring factions of all kinds might be going on around us, from political stuff to social stuff to economic stuff, there has to be a way, and I think there is a way, for us to stand in a kind of poise. But that poise can't be manufactured, especially can't be manufactured in the moment. See, I really want you to catch this. Abigail did this because she was the kind of person who would and could. You don't manufacture this in the moment. It's too late then. You have to have been formed into the kind of person for whom doing this was just seemed to be the natural right thing to do. And so if you wonder why around here we bang on about spiritual transformation into Christ's likeness, that's why. We don't bang on about it because it's a trend. We don't bang on about it to be different than everybody else. We bang on about it because it was what Christ was doing. It's not an accident that David has huge weaknesses and huge strengths. Same is true for Peter. James and John totally misunderstand the nature of power. Judas betrays Jesus. We could go on and on. When Jesus taught and he looked at crowds, he knew that he was looking at the Imago Dei. When Jesus looked at a crowd like this, he knew that he was looking at the image of God in humanity, but also knowing that it was deeply flawed and had become deeply broken after millennia since the fall being worked into the human person. And Jesus just knows that to follow him means that that stuff gets worked out of us and produces in us these great things like just the generosity of Abigail, her courage to stand between these two seething men. I kind of see her like a prophet saying to David, please don't do this. Like, remember your anointing. It just, to me, sounds like Amos saying, hey, Israel, don't do this. Remember your calling. She's functioning very much here like a prophet. David, don't do this because what you intend to do is beneath the dignity of your calling. You've got no time for grudge matches, David. Your focus is supposed to be on serving the people of God. And then it stood out to me that she reaped in beautiful results the beauty that she herself had sowed within her. So as Peterson says, she's an icon to us, mediating to us what the overflow of life in the kingdom of God can look like. And I think what Abigail was to David, our reading in John this morning, informs us that this is what the incarnation of Christ is to us. Jesus, of course, is superior to anyone or anything. He's the full revelation of God, that to which Abigail and others pointed. He's the light that shines in our darkness. But as Jesus said, some people prefer the darkness. And so David had to choose what to do with the appearing of Abigail before him. He did not expect to meet Abigail on that road. And when he sees this woman bowing in the dirt before him, he has to decide what to do with this revelation. And what John is telling us is that we have a similar choice to make regarding Jesus. So I've been doing a lot of driving recently and I try to make good use of the time. So 
I've been listening to C.S. Lewis's books on tape. It's been a while, you know, since I've given myself deeply to Lewis. But his book, Mere Christianity, I think has some insights for us here to close this this morning. Insights on what caused David to react when his self-defined identity was challenged and how Abigail became the self that she was. So this is a couple paragraphs, but hang in, I think they're rewarding. The terrible thing, Lewis writes, the almost impossible thing is to hand over your whole self, all your wishes and precautions to Christ. But it's far easier than what we're trying to do instead, to remain what we call ourselves, to keep personal happiness as our aim in life. But to become the new persons that Christ means us to be, it means losing what we now call ourselves. Out of ourselves and into Christ we must go. For the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take over, the more truly ourselves we become. But the more I try to resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. Now, I do not in the slightest bit mean to be unkind, but this whole notion, this sort of, you know, when I was a kid, James Dean, I don't know who it is now, but this whole notion of being independent and making myself a self is just really nonsense. When you do that, you really are just giving yourself to your context. Lewis couldn't be more right. You're just giving yourself over to your heredity, to your upbringing, to your surroundings, and to your natural desires. You're not inventing something. In fact, Lewis goes on to say, what I call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I can't stop. You didn't decide where you were born. You didn't decide who your parents were. You didn't decide probably where to go to school. You didn't decide, in a sense, who you're a group of people you could pick friends from. These are things that life does to us. And so he says, what I call my wishes become merely the desires thrown upon me by my physical organism or pumped into me by other people's thoughts or even suggested to me by devils. I'm not, Lewis writes, in my natural state, nearly so much of a person as I'd like to believe. Most of all, what I call me can be very easily explained. It's when I turn to Christ when I give myself up to his personality that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. And until you give up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. Your real self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. So give yourself up, Lewis says, and you'll find a real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Look for yourself and you'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. That's what's happening in Nabal and David as they try to create this self. That's what it reduces down to. But Abigail, look for Christ and you'll find him and with him, everything else thrown in. Now that stuff about self explains all three characters. It explains Nabal and David who are trying to create a self and it explains Abigail, who was becoming a self in the image of God. So as we come now to a quiet moment, I guess you could go a couple of directions here. Thinking of the characters in the story, the three main characters, who are you most inclined to learn from? Like how, how is the Holy Spirit helping you to see or learn from any one of those three characters? Or you could go a different way and wonder this morning, are you consciously aware of seeking formation in the manner in which Abigail did? Or you might even go another way. What moves you about Abigail? And how might that be a little signpost 
from the Spirit working in your life.